0: Yo, yo, what up everyone? This is your life coach, Jacob Sobel, and welcome to WTF Should I Do With My Life. You're about to access a roadmap specifically designed for people in our generation, like you and me, who are looking to figure out how to create a life filled with happiness, success, and a deep sense of purpose, while simultaneously dealing with the challenges of today. This interview is with award-winning social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt who via his book The Happiness Hypothesis examines the world's philosophical wisdom through the lens of psychological science. This interview is going to be incredible and Jonathan's going to share the three specific relationships you'll need to have in order to be happy and fulfilled. You'll also learn the only two things that will ensure lasting change in your life and why everything else is pretty much a waste of time. We'll talk about the biggest mistakes young adults make when it comes to finding passionate love. We'll talk about what true love is, where it comes from, and why it's so important. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Jacob.
2: Fantastic. Well, so excited to dive deep into your wisdom and help spread it into the lives of my generation. And I think an awesome place to start would be, if you could share a little bit of your experience as being a young adult, what were some of the challenges that you faced as a young adult and how did they lead you down a path to be where you are now?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I was very fortunate. I was uh, uh, born to loving parents who stayed married to each other, even though uh, the marriage actually wasn't that good for them, but it was very good for, for me and my sisters. Um, I was raised in an in upper middle class uh, suburb in Scarsdale, New York. Um, so I had every, uh, every possible uh, advantage. <clears throat> um, and I was growing up, uh, I, grew up in the, I was born in 1963, so I was really growing up in the 70s and, and the early 80s. Um, it was a time when uh, America seemed to be in decline, and, and we thought our best days were behind us. Um, but there was a gradual uh, a gradual picking up in the 80s, and the economy picked up in the 80s. So I think relative to, to many of your uh, listeners who are, who are facing uh, this terrible economy and and little sign of progress in sight, I, I had it easy. Um, uh, but, you know, one interesting finding in positive psychology is that objective circumstances actually don't have all that much to do with people's level of happiness. Um, that it comes down... Mostly to uh, both your your sort of innate temperament and how optimistic you are, and then also the state of your relationships. Those are really the two most important factors. So, um, wow. if I were to give a, sort of my my searching story or my story of being a young adult who didn't know what he wanted to do, um, it, it kind of starts in high school when I um, I thought for sure I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to. I was going to be pre med. Um, I loved science, uh, and then I, I, it was actually, it was literally while reading, waiting for Godot in English class, and and um, uh, thinking through the, you know, this existentialism, and the idea that there's no God, and no externally given meaning to life, um, and I was an atheist at the time already, I was raised Jewish, but had become an atheist by the time I was about 16, um, and that plunged me into a kind of a, a philosophical depression, um, even though life was going great for me, and I I had my first girlfriend and I was captain of the track team and and you know, I'm not a good athlete but I pole vaulted, so I was able to somehow do okay at any rate objectively things were fantastic but I w- was plunged into this kind of philosophical despair that there's no purpose to life no meaning to life um, and that caused me to reassess what I wanted to do at least to the point of I decided to major in philosophy um, which was of no help actually uh, but I I was that sort of person who's just deeply questing and, and feels there's something missing, and and I set out to, well, I, I guess I was always searching for some, for some meaning to life.
2: Yeah, that's so interesting. I think so many of us can feel like, objectively, things are fantastic, and uh, so much of it plays into where we are, I and mean, we're born in, I'm born in New York as well, and just being born in this culture, culture of privilege, we have so many things granted to us that other parts of the world. And different cultures don't have. And I think that it can become a little bit strange because, on one hand, we have all these things, yet internally we know something is off. And there is that truth within us that won't shut up, in a sense, right? It just keeps trying to tell us, hey, something is going on, something is off. And the more we try to quiet it down, the more it speaks up. So I would love to go into um happiness right this is why we're all here today this is what we all want to know about how do we be happier how do we create lives that are of deep fulfillment and one of the things you say in the happiness hypothesis is that happiness is not something that you can find or acquire or achieve directly but that you need to have the conditions right so can you share with us what you mean by that and maybe enlighten us with your hypothesis for how we can create happy lives yes absolutely
1: um So the original title of my book was uh, 12 Great Truths, Insights into Mind and Heart from Ancient Cultures and Modern Psychology. Uh, And it grew out of the fact that I taught this big Psych 101 class at the University of Virginia. Um, And I I began to see all these ideas expressed by the ancients that most of which stacked up pretty well according to modern research. So I was gonna write a book on that. And I wrote up, I got a contract to write the book with basic books uh, and I wrote up the first draft of the book. and then the editor said, well, we don't like the title. And, and they get to make up the title by contract. It's a, it's a marketing decision. So they make up the title and they came up with the title, the happiness hypothesis. And I thought, huh? I, I mean, this book, it's only, it's not really about happiness. It's about a lot of things. I mean, a few chapters about happiness, but it's not really focused on happiness. And, and then what is the happiness hypothesis? I don't even know. So like, what am I going to do? People ask me, so Jonathan, <laughs> what is the happiness hypothesis? But, As I thought about it, and as I looked back at what I'd written, I realized that actually there are three happiness hypotheses that we can identify, we can distinguish among. So the simplest is the hypothesis that happiness comes from getting what you want. We all uh, want many things in the course of a day. We exert effort to get them. We get some of them. We don't get others. Um, And uh, uh, do we become happy from uh, achieving our goals? Well, the answer is no. Um, The answer is, that um, when we strive for something and we achieve it, what actually happens isn't a big flash of happiness. It's rather the turning off of search circuits in the brain. So the pleasure of pursuit is actually making progress, and when you achieve your goal, you don't have this gigantic celebrations, explosion of pleasure and dopamine. It's just things turn off. It's a feeling of relief. So it feels good to get what you want, but it's not as big or as long-lasting as we think. In fact, it's very short-lasting. So even if you've been trying for years to achieve some goal and you get it, a day or two later, uh, it's mostly worn off. So if you take that as your hypothesis, well, it's false. Um, Then there's a more sophisticated version of the happiness hypothesis, which is that happiness comes from within. Ooh, that sounds deep. Um, Well, that's what Buddha (laughs) said. That's what the Stoics said and Epictetus and... um, You know, these were, in these early civilizations, you know, 2,000 years ago, um, they lived in big societies with governments, but they were chaotic. Um, Kings could be murdered at any time. Uh, Armies could sweep in and and conquer the territory at any time. Um, So these great thinkers preached uh, um, detachment. They preached, don't be so attached to your goals that when life frustrates you, you're plunged into despair. Accept that. Accept that life will never give you. Uh, everything you want. Um, Focus on calming your desires, controlling yourself. Um, So happiness comes from within. Well, that's better. Um, That's a better happiness hypothesis. And uh, this is why so many Americans are drawn, I think, to Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism teaches a technique, the Eightfold Noble Path, a technique for cultivating detachment, um, separating yourself from life's ups and downs, getting more equanimity. Uh, And I think that's very, very valuable. So I think that's pretty good, happiness comes from within. But the, the, the big surprise for me, after reviewing all the literature on happiness that I could find, uh, <clears throat> is that I actually think that Buddhism is um, not – well, there's so much to recommend it, but I don't think it's so great for young people. What I mean by that is that uh, if you look at the life of the Buddha, he, um, you know, he's born a, a prince – and he has uh, a harem and dancing girls and he's given every possible pleasure and uh, his father wants to keep him there and have him inherit the kingdom. Um, and he has all those pleasures, but then he goes off, uh, uh, you know, he sees, he sees a, a sick man, an old man, a, a dead man. Um, he realizes that once more, he sets off on a quest and he lives as a hermit in, in the woods and he cultivates detachment and self-abnegation. And many years later, he has this enlightenment experience under the bow tree. Um, But what would happen if one tried to really um, uh, cultivate this as a teenager? If one didn't have all the ups and downs, all the triumphs and failures, um, I think that would be a stunted life. So I actually think, I mean, I'm sure Buddhists have have, uh, a a response to this. I mean, it's an extremely sophisticated uh, and wise tradition, so I don't want to knock it per se. I'm just saying that, the conclusion I came to um, is that the best way to describe human happiness is that happiness comes from between, it comes from getting the right relationship between yourself and others, yourself and your work, and yourself and something larger than yourself. So go ahead, fall in love, strive, get your heart broken, have your dreams crushed and get back up and, and, and try it again. Um, one thing I learned in teaching uh, – Teaching a positive psychology class at UVA, we we talked a lot about adversity and, and what it takes, whether adversity is necessary uh, for for uh, uh, for the most um, developed life. And there was a woman in, in our class. And there was an undergraduate student who had a brain tumor, and she had undergone surgery and had a part of her brain removed. And you know she here she is this beautiful 21 year old uh, woman. Um, facing the prospect of death. Uh, and she wrestled with this for a number of years. Um, and in discussing whether she, whether one who has faced such a situation can actually enjoy life more, uh, whether adversity leads to growth, there's actually a whole field called post-traumatic growth. There's research on that. The conclusion we came to was that, yes, it does. Um, those who have had everything, uh, those who have had no challenges, no setbacks, um, actually cannot reach the highest levels of, of human liberation. Um, well, all right, I've I just covered a lot of ground in a haphazard way. I'm sorry about that. But the point is uh, that the ultimate version of the happiness hypothesis is that happiness comes from between. And I think this is really the task of people in their 20s um, is finding those betweens. They're looking for Um, uh, they're they're looking for a career, they're looking for work they can throw themselves into, Uh, they're looking for love. Uh, I don't know whether uh, people in their 20s are are looking for a permanent relationship or marriage, uh, as people did uh, when I was a kid. Um, um, I I don't know, but certainly in the 20s and 30s is the time when uh, people begin to form those between
2: yeah, FYI, I think we're all experimenting, us in our 20s, and, and that's one of the other conversations I'm excited to be having about what are the options for healthy relationships that support our growth and beyond. So we spoke a lot about happiness, and I'm thrilled that we got to touch on your story. And one of the challenges that I think we all face living in today's modern society is that it feels like pop culture is at a all-out war with happiness and mastery, and we just have all these insane kind of super normal allurements and the temptation to be instantly gratified almost at every angle. And we're bombarded with mess, superficial messages. And unless we've done research or really pay attention to ourselves and study ourselves, we would think that what society says would make us happy. The money, the same, the beauty, we, we would think that that actually would make us happy, but I, I don't think it does. And the research says that it doesn't. Um, So how can we effectively cope with and navigate living in a society that bombards us with messages counterproductive to our happiness? Mm -hmm.
1: Right. And that's a good point. So um, an important psychological principle here is that the human mind is not very sensitive to absolute levels of things. What we really notice are changes. So we notice, you know, if if the temperature or the loudness of something or, or the amount of money that you have in the bank, whatever it is, um, we adapt to things generally. But if it changes, it goes up or down, we notice that uh, very quickly. And and that's uh, that's um, one of the reasons why as people get richer, they don't really get happier because you sort of adapt to it. Um, I mean, that's not quite true. If you get a lot richer, then you do get a little bit happier. Um, we adapt to it. But the other important uh, thing that we notice is how we're doing relative to others. Um, so we're not... Um, you know, we are all fabulously wealthy compared to our great-grandparents. We have just so much stuff, uh, so much great stuff, so much money, and can do so much that they couldn't do for most of us. Um, but we're not really comparing ourselves to people in previous centuries. We're comparing ourselves to the people who are around now. And our reference group is very much affected by the media. Um, so if you see uh, lots of fabulously rich people or you know filthy rich uh, um, people and, and role models are, are are decked out in bling and gold and stuff like that. Um, that that could really be bad for the health of young people. Um, we are um, again, we're very bad at just sort of charting a course through life on our own. We're always looking to others for guidance uh, and to figure out what is good, what is successful. Uh, so yes, it's uh, it is hard when pop culture is fostering this very superficial, materialistic, hypersexual uh, instant gratification uh, idea.
2: Yeah, so let's go into a little bit about what we know does bring happiness, and you touched on relationships and love, and you say it's one of the most important components of happiness. So I think this people who are listening to this chat, myself included, um, being young adults, we're somewhat inexperienced with relationships, and I think that we often confuse the feeling of puppy love for having being kind of found finding our true soulmate in a sense, and we don't really know the difference between the two. So, enlighten us, tell us, you know, what is true love? Where does it come from? And why does passionate love always seem to cool down?
1: Right. Okay. Well, I hate to uh, hate to t- tackle the most romantic topic. Uh, possible with a a simple distinction, but here we go. Um, There are two basic kinds of love, uh, and they are passionate love and companionate love. That's the main thing you got to know. And um, companionate love, you know, we all know. Everybody has friends. Everybody's had a dog. Uh, Not everybody's had a dog, but, you know, those of you who, who had dogs, You know, like when you go off to summer camp or something, sometimes you miss your dog more than you miss your parents or your friends because you're attached to him. Mm -hmm. So You have to understand the attachment system. The attachment system is this deep, deep thing that all mammals have. The attachment system is when you're attached to somebody, you're happy when you're with them, and then you can go explore and be playful. And when they're gone, when your secure base is gone, uh, then you're more anxious, um, you know, you're, you're sort of waiting for them to come back, Anyway, um, let's see. I'm sorry, that's getting us off topic just a little bit. Let me just go back. to The basic distinction is between companionate love or friendship, uh, the kind of love you can have with many people, including your dog. Um, and then there's passionate love, which is very much like taking a huge hit of LSD. It distorts your <laughs> perception. It, it, gives you, it makes you walk on air. It changes your sleep patterns. Um, um, <clears throat> it's, it, it's, it, it's a temporary psychosis. Um, you're going to start thinking about spending your life with this person and having babies with this person. Um, and it's the most delicious, wonderful, and intense feeling one can have. So I'm a big fan of passionate love. Uh, I just want to warn people that it is a delirium, and you shouldn't make decisions about marriage based on falling passionately in love. Because the main predictor of passionate love is not whether you're compatible for life, it's just whether you find the person hot. Um, that's the main thing that does it does. So when people, you know, in the old days, people thought that there was true love and, you know, you see someone love at first sight. Well, that leads to a lot of bad marriages. Um, So there are two mistakes that people commonly make. The first is when they fall into passionate love, they think this means they should get married. Um, That's often a mistake. You need to wait because you can't possibly know if the person's right for you uh, until you wait for the passionate love to cool and you find out whether companionate love is growing. But the other mistake people make is that when the passionate love cools, and it often can cool in an instant, you know, you, for a few months you're you're insane and you think the person's the greatest person in the world and everything she says is so brilliant, but then maybe, you know, she'll say something which is kind of dorky or maybe it seems maybe a little racist or just, you know, who knows what, and suddenly the spell breaks. You say, what? Oh, my God, who is this person? Um, and at that point, many people break up because, well, you know, it wasn't true love. Um, that might be the right thing to do, but... It might well be the wrong thing to do. So uh, you know, enjoy passionate love, but recognize that it is a specific reflex designed by evolution to make us create a baby. It lasts for two to three menstrual cycles, which is how long it takes for a man and woman to uh, to create a baby if they're trying. If a married couple is trying to have a baby, it takes a couple of cycles. So that's how long romantic love lasts. Um, It's not a guide for marriage. It's really just a way to, it's nature's way of getting women pregnant, basically. Um, So take that for what it is. Um, and uh, then um, be on the lookout for signs afterwards that you truly are um, compatible. Um, one thing that I can tell you that I think I didn't didn't know and wasn't clear enough to me when I was when I was young is that um, the joys of parenthood are while they're not quite as intense as the most the most you know, the craziest falling in love. I mean that's like the best way you can ever have, but that only lasts for you know a few weeks or months. The joys of being a parent um, go on for years and years and years. It's really, really wonderful. And um, I think it's tragic that marriage is declining so fast in America. Um, we're almost at the point where most kids are not going to be raised by, by their two biological parents. Um, and marriage uh, is just plummeting. Um, and that's terrible, it's tragic. So, you know, many of your listeners are going to have children, but not uh, they're not going to marry the, the, the co-parent, which is, is bad for everybody. Um, So I I would urge people. I mean, marriage is one. Marriage and religion; those are two, two factors that are robustly associated with happiness. So uh, I would urge your listeners um, to uh, do what they can to find the right person to get married to. Uh, I'm sure they don't want to find that right person when they're 21, maybe, uh, but you know, at some point in the 20s.
2: Yeah, such big ideas here. I mean, I'm. Um speaking on behalf of everyone listening to this chat, but that's such an important and incredible distinction to make as such a, such an epiphany for so many of us. And I mean, that's, that's another challenge that I think we face in this generation is that we have access to so much incredible information that we can be having, you know, we can have epiphanies very, uh, you know, very, very frequently. There's books, there's podcasts. there's chats like this, there's Ted talks. I mean, there's, we have it all in that sense. But one of the challenges is that it can be really overwhelming to figure out what the proper information diet is. And, and when we have that epiphany, how do we actually translate uh, an aha moment into lasting change?
1: Great question.
2: Something I've thought a lot about.
1: Um, cause I, I'm, a, I'm an odd junkie. I've had many such epiphanies in my life and, and thought everything was going to change and then, you know, and then it doesn't. Epiphanies are, are actually kind of cheap. I mean, they're wonderful when they happen. Um, but what tends to happen is they fade away, and a month later, it's as though nothing ever happened. Um, <clears throat> so, um, realizations and insights—the kind you could get in psychotherapy or from reading a book—they um, can be thrilling. But unless you change, um, unless you change your environment or your relationships, not, nothing's going to change. where you'd rather just say you will revert to the way you were. So, you know, for example, in Buddhism, you know, the basic technique for making spiritual progress is meditation. Uh, but they're very wise about what it takes to maintain that progress and talk about the importance of a community. I think Sangha is the word I think for it. Um, so um, you you need to make changes in your life that will sustain whatever insights you've had. Um, I'm a social psychologist, and the basic insight in social psychology is that people are sheep. We are lemmings. We are incredibly influenced by the people around us. Um, We do not steer by our own compass. Our compass is basically responding to all the magnetic radiations of everybody around us. So um, uh, one of the most important things you can do if you want to change yourself is to change your peer group. Stop hanging around uh, with with certain people. Uh, My wife has this phrase. She she calls, she says that some people are she Suckers. Qi is this Chinese medicine word, you know, for like vital energy. And some people are qi suckers. They just suck out all your qi. And after you, after the, you know, you've heard about their problems and their woe for you know three hours, uh, you know, five times a week, you're just drained. Other people are qi stalkers. They stalk your qi. They, you know, you, you emerge uh, energized and optimistic from from interacting with them. Um, so avoid qi suckers and, and, and uh, uh, capitalize or make more time uh, for chi uh, stalkers. Um, be very aware of the values of your reference group. If you go to work uh, on Wall Street, you'll be surrounded by certain, um, certain values. If you go to work uh, in the academic world, you'll be surrounded by different values. Uh, <coughs> <let's see. coughs> um, it would be very difficult, difficult to maintain a set of values that is at variance with uh, everybody around you. So pay a lot of attention to who surrounds you um, and to your relationships.
2: Yeah, I want to honor your time. I have two quick questions that I want to get out there, and you take as however long you'd like to respond to them. When, when making change, that can, that can be a really difficult process, and I think that a lot of us aren't willing to feel the pain that we need to feel in order to stop feeling our pain. So how can we deal with, Embracing that and doing what it takes to change.
1: Hmm. Well, the question of how do you change yourself is 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 that's a difficult question. Um, uh, you know, how can you consciously set out to change yourself? Uh, in my book, I distinguish, but I I use the metaphor that the mind is divided like a rider on an elephant, where the rider is our conscious reasoning. And the elephant is the other 99% of our minds, all the automatic processes, intuitive processes. So the rider makes New Year's resolutions. You know, I'm gonna stop and smell the roses this year. I'm gonna be nicer to my parents. I'm gonna exercise, etc., <laughs> etc. Et uh, well, those are just resolutions made by the rider. They don't actually have any binding force because the elephant really is in charge. Um, so how do you change? Uh, well, you to first understand the necessity of changing the elephant, but even more importantly, the easiest way to change is to change the path that the elephant is on. Because that's what I was saying before about um, the people around you are, uh, and the career you pick, those are, in a sense, the path. And the writer can make decisions about what path to place yourself on. But Also in your question, I heard something about adversity and pain. And um, I think I would just say that in, in uh, writing, in doing some research many years ago for the MacArthur Foundation, on the sense of control and efficacy, um, I read, I can't remember where it was, but I read somebody who'd studied uh, the lives of many great people. And one thing common to almost everybody um, was some major defeat, failure, or setback. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so, you know, Bill Clinton, for example, lost, uh, he was governor at a very young age, and he was defeated. Um, and, you know, but he came roaring back. He had a number of defeats along the way. Uh, you know, lots of scandals and problems but always came back um, that's one thing that worried me a bit about Obama is that he didn't have any such thing uh, along the way so in a sense he wasn't really tested uh, uh, now I think he's uh, extremely perceptive and, and I love his writing and, and he got up to a slow start in some ways in his first term but he certainly learns fast on the job um, so uh, I would just say um, uh, by all means um, challenge yourself set high goals, uh, accept the fact that you will probably fail at some point. And if you're never failing, uh, then you haven't been setting uh, high enough goals. <laughs>
2: I love it. Hey, last question. What's the number one thing that you now know that you wish you knew as a young adult?
1: Ah, uh, let's see. Gosh, what do I wish I knew as a young adult? Um, well, let's see. Well, Nothing comes to mind exactly, but I will. All right, I will give you one sort of perverse thought, which I, I don't. It's not that I needed this as a young adult. Um, I was uh, so. What I'll share with you is that um, money actually matters quite a lot um, in ways that you don't realize. Now, it's not like I want to share this with young people, like, oh, you, you know, now you should go out and make money. Um, but. Um, uh, I was part of a generation that was very anti-materialistic in the 70s. I I wasn't a hippie or anything. That was before my time. But, uh, you know, we all looked down on uh, materialism. And that's great. People who um, are materialistic and set out to get rich are less happy and they're more shallow. Um, And I went into academics never thinking that I was going to make any money. I mean, you you know, my parents were very disappointed. You know, I'm Jewish and my my. My parents wanted me to be a doctor, lawyer, or, you know, going to Wall Street. They didn't want me to be a professor. Um, um, But just, you know, by luck and by the fact that I published some books that have sold well, I actually have a lot of money now. Um, And the surprise has been that it it allows me to be a better person. That is, um, it allows me to solve problems quickly without uh, worrying about them. It allows me to always do the ethical thing, uh, even if, you know, sometimes I'll make a mistake and it will cost me money to to rectify, why well, can just do it? That the money doesn't matter because I, I have plenty of it now. Um, so it's not, you know, as I would just say, because you know, among many young people, it's popular to have contempt for, for money and wealth. Um, I would just say that it, it does allow you to uh, remove many of the material constraints on life. It allows you to be extraordinarily generous whenever you want to be. Um, it allows you to gain more time uh, because you can you can pay people to do things that are time consuming, um so it's not this is not the number one lesson I want to tell young people. It's rather just an insight I've gotten as I've gotten older that I had no idea about uh, when i when I was younger. I hope that's not a down yeah. you know, uh.
2: <laughs> well, hey, thank you for being so generous right now with your time and your energy and your wisdom, and I would of course, love to lead the listeners with a path that they could follow you on. So what's the best way they can keep in contact with your work and go deeper into some of the wisdom that you have out there and are offering?
1: Um, well, for this conversation, uh, the most relevant book is the, the Happiness Hypothesis. And so if listeners go to happinesshypothesis.com, um, they can read the first chapter of the book. They can see some videos, radio interviews, all sorts of things. Um, my more recent book is called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People are Divided by Politics and Religion. Uh, it's not quite so relevant for this conversation, but it does have all kinds of videos and things that I've been doing in recent years because my main research is not actually on happiness, it's actually on uh, morality. Um, so those would be the ways. Also, let's see, what else would I advise? Uh, well, I have a bunch of resources there at happinesshypothesis.com. And there's, uh, I would also advise people just learn more about positive psychology. Um, there's a lot of research now on on, the, uh, on what actually makes people happy. Um, there is, uh, let's see, Sonia Lubomirsky has some books out that are very practical. Her, let's uh, L-U-Y-B-O-M-I-R-S-K-Y, look up her books. Uh, those are some sort of how-to guides um, to, that are based in science. Um, so there's actually a huge amount of, of research-backed uh, information out there that people can use to make their lives go better. That's what positive psychology is all about.
2: Yes. And for everybody listening, we also are doing an interview with Sonia Leibomirsky that you guys will all have access to. So I want to check that out as well. And Jonathan, I'm speaking on behalf of everyone listening. Just thank you so much. So honored that we get to uh, hang out with you for this time and appreciate you big time. So again, thank you.
1: Uh, my pleasure, Jacob. Good luck to you all.
0: I loved that interview. Now let's take a look at some of my favorite big ideas, big idea number one, the three relationships. So the first happiness hypothesis is that happiness comes from setting goals and achieving them. But actually, the reason goal accomplishment is great is because it turns off the searching mechanism in our brain. So the accomplishment of goals is much more like a sense of relief, and the excitement and joy really only lasts a very short time. The second happiness hypothesis is that happiness comes from within. It's a more old-school Buddhist and stoic type of philosophy and they say life is filled with suffering and that we need to accept that, so we should focus on calming our desires, being detached, and keeping an evenness of mind, that's equanimity. But it turns out that ups and downs, triumphs and failures are actually needed, and people who have no setbacks and challenges can't reach the highest level of human flourishing. That's a pretty good thing to know. So, the happiness hypothesis we're rocking with is that happiness comes from between, more specifically, It comes from getting the right relationship between three things. The first, you want to get the right relationship between yourself and between others. The second is, you want to get the right relationship between yourself and your work. And the third is, you want to get the right relationship between yourself and something larger than yourself. Now let's take a look at big idea number two, two kinds of love. Jonathan talks about two basic kinds of love, passionate love and companionate love. Companionate love is the way you love your dog, it's friendship, it's partnership, it works with the attachment system which is a deep part of our mammal nature. When you're attached to something, you're happy when you're with them and then you can go and explore and be playful. And when that secure base is gone, you're more anxious. Passionate love, on the other hand, is like taking a huge hit of LSD. Am I the only one who cracked up when Jonathan said that? It distorts your perspective and it makes you feel like you can walk on air. It even changes your sleep patterns. You're gonna start thinking about spending your life and having babies with this person, but watch out because this type of love is a delirium. If you're in passionate love, Do not start thinking about making decisions about marriage. You can't possibly know if someone is right for you until you wait for the passionate love to cool down and you'll see if companionate love is right for you and this person. Passionate love is a result of evolution trying to get us to reproduce. Big Idea Number Three, Where Changes Come From. Epiphanies are thrilling, but they're cheap, they fade away, and months later, nothing ever happens. This is a huge insight. A huge insight. I'm clearly excited about it. Unless you change your environment or your relationships, change won't last. I'm going to say that again. Unless you change your environment or your relationships, change won't last. This is why community is so important. You need to make changes in your life that will sustain whatever insights you have. If you want to change yourself, change your peer group. Stop hanging out with the knuckleheads and losers and start hanging out with people who you admire. Hang out with people who make you energized, not people who take energy away from you, and be aware of what the values are of the people who you're hanging out with. Soul sibling, thank you so much for rocking with us. I appreciate you, and I appreciate that you're using your time and your energy toward making yourself a better person and the world a better place. So if you'd like to keep in touch, I'd love it if you subscribe to the podcast and I'm excited to deepen our relationship to get to know each other better over time and to see how I can help you solve meaningful challenges and create your most fulfilled life. We've got a great community over here and we run retreats all over the world. We've got people who connect with each other and support each other in living the most fulfilled life. And what I'd suggest for your next step is to grab a copy of The 12 Things Happy People Do Differently. It's a scientific-based approach to happiness, and there's a lot of great wisdom out there, but this in particular is researched back from some of the world's leading positive psychologists in the world, and it's super grounded, super practical, how you could do these 12 things that happy people do differently and rock it. The article's been shared over 100,000 times on. On facebook and there's some magic in there so in order to grab a copy of that you can go to thank you jacob.com. sounds simple and it is thank you jacob.com and uh, grab that immediately and i will keep in touch through personal emails that i send out a couple times a month and all that goodness so for now sending you lots of love keep it real follow your heart but bring your head peace